Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the last six special episodes of the Squiggly Careers podcast to celebrate and champion International Women's Day. This is the final one in our series, and in this episode, I'll be talking to Kajal Adedra and Lauren Bravo. These are two women who I was really keen to talk to because I think they are both changing the world and they are also helping us to do a better job of changing the world too. So first you'll hear me talk to Kajal and she is the director of change.org which I'm sure is an organisation lots of you will be familiar with. You've perhaps maybe you've started a petition or perhaps you've signed a petition And whether you're a campaigner or not, what Kajal talks about so passionately and eloquently is this idea that we can all be activists. And she is incredibly smart and switched on. And then I'm delighted that we could end the series by chatting to Lauren Bravo, who is the author of a book called How to Break Up with Fast Fashion. I think the fast fashion industry, we probably intuitively know, has detrimental impact on both kind of human and environmental well-being. But perhaps it's one of those problems that feels so big and overwhelming, it's tricky to know what any of us can do about it. And what I love about Lauren and the research and writing that she's done is, yes, she doesn't hide away from those big problems, but also she does bring it back to the practical realities of what we can all do day to day. So actually the two interviews really segue nicely because the first with Kajal is much more about making change and why that's important. And then I think Lauren talks about a specific area that I'm sure lots of people listening will be really interested and intrigued to know how they can do things differently to have a positive impact on the world. I really hope you enjoy both of the conversations. If there's ever anyone changing the world, it's Kajil. So I'm delighted to welcome her to the Squiggly Careers podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, I'm so excited about chatting today. But let's start with you and campaigning generally, because I think it's something that we're lots of us are aware of, but perhaps don't have that much experience in or don't know that much about. And yet it looks like, certainly when I was kind of reading about you beforehand, that that's where you started, Mm. where you wanted to be from kind of day one in your career. So what got you interested in it? So now I'm just going to start talking about my childhood because it really (laughs) just starts there. My parents are immigrants, so my they're from India and Uganda. And when they came over to the UK, they settled in Lancashire and I was born in Burnley in Lancashire. They had four daughters. I'm second eldest. And when they arrived, they had a hard time settling in because there was such a hostile environment in the UK and a hostile reception to immigrants coming over. We eventually moved to Derbyshire to a white working class village. Mum and dad found a shop and they were running a kind of news agents. The community there just, you know, there was a real rejection of us and there was a lot of racism on a daily basis at school as well for me and my sisters. And... I look back at my childhood and I just remember my mum and dad fighting so hard and just not giving up. It took a few years to get the authorities to take us seriously and to actually give us proper mm. protection, proper support. But they did it and they they just turned around how the community felt and treated us in the you know 25 years that they were running that shop. By the end, when they retired, 
our house was just inundated with flowers of bouquets and cards and they became real you know pillars of the community and really it was a small minority who were trying to make us feel unwelcome but that can feel like everything for you so I think it's partly that. It's also partly I'm second eldest and I've <laughs> definitely got a real need to shout out and um, be heard. And so when I was at school, I remember I wanted to be on the school council. I went to university and I was on, on the committee there. And I think, yeah, just had this real sense of if you don't speak up, no one else will speak up for you. And so, you know, you have to do it. And then I basically had this idea, like, what does it look like for me to speak up? And I really was interested in writing and I was also interested in campaigning. Then the tsunami happened as I was graduating. And so I just really felt compelled to go over there and see what I could do. I was graduating and I I didn't know where I wanted to go next. And so I travelled and then went to Thailand and volunteered for this children's charity and so that really sealed it for me. And I was like, I really want to do something that where I can actually see the impact it's having and really practically help people. And that's really where it started. And when I came back to the UK, I started working at the UK Youth Parliament. And that was all about empowering young people to find the issues that they really cared about. So the main issues that I worked on were sex and relationships education in the curriculum, lowering the voting age to 16, and then helping them to use their voices to campaign rather than, you know, us doing it for them. Yeah, it's interesting because I think almost through the adversity that you obviously experienced kind of personally, in some ways you might think, oh, well, perhaps, you know, you deserve to have kind of easier life and, you know, hopefully things have gotten easier. You, You could have gone the other way and actually just thought oh, you know, I'm just going to be a bit more even keeled now. Whereas actually, I think probably it sounds like your experience, if anything, made you more resilient, more inclined to actually go, well, yes, it might take time, but look at the difference I can make. Look at the difference that my parents made to that community. I think that's what adversity does. I think it actually strengthens you. For me, being a woman of colour, I saw the world as an outsider. Mm -hmm. And so I have deep empathy for outsiders. And often when you're in a situation, often in campaigning, you know, there is um, a David Goliath kind of dynamic. And I just desperately always want to help that, you know, the David to just like, you know, here are your tools. This is what you should do. This is how to defeat and just, you know, win your campaign. And a lot of people probably won't really have a sense for what your week looks like. So, you know, runningchange.org, which most people will have heard of, but perhaps just describe the kind of ins and outs of what kind of change is there to do. And then maybe a bit about like, what do you spend your time doing? What does being a campaign look and feel like? Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes people are either surprised that there's a team there because they think it's just a website. Okay. Or they think (laughs) it's a massive operation. So in the UK, there's eight of us. And we're mostly made up of campaigns and communications experts. And what happens is when, you know, we have hundreds of people starting petitions on our site, we get around a thousand in the UK a month. When people start their campaign, we will, on a daily basis, just scour everything that's being started, look at what's trending, reach out to petition starters who where we see there's real potential. There's a really strong campaign here and maybe that petition starter just needs some extra guidance. And so our team will ring people up and just basically offer support, strategy support. The way I like to think about it is that NGOs and politicians and unions have campaigns and communications operations. And so when they're campaigning, they've got whole teams dedicated to this. If you're an ordinary person, you know, you don't have any of that. And you've also never done this before. You've maybe something's happening to your kid at school that you want to campaign about the education system. So you start your petition, then our team essentially parachute around you and become that campaigns and communications strategy team for you. Sometimes they're like, you know, they get surprised when they hear from us because they're like, I don't have, I don't, you know, I can't pay you. But we're like, no, 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 this is our service. This is what we do. Our whole aim is for everyone to be able to create the change they want to see. So we want those petition starters to win their campaigns. And so our day can look like anything from, so it starts off every morning. We, you know, we'll run through the news, we'll run through what's trending on the site. And then everyone just kind of goes out and starts reaching out to petition starters and starts working on those campaigns. And then on any day, you know, we might be organising a petition delivery, meeting with other organisations to see how they can help the petition starters on our site, meeting with decision makers. And then as the day goes on and San Francisco wakes up, I might be (laughs) 
on calls to our product team because you know you've got our the team in the UK but then we've got a team of around 50 engineers and product people based in San Francisco who are round the clock just dedicated to creating the best tools possible for petition starters and for their supporters to be able to you know take their campaign from oh that's just a petition on a website to a fully, you know, a live campaign that can actually win and change the decision maker's mind. So I think listening to you, I would assume that the best part of your job is when a petition kind of happens or when you kind of win. I don't know if you use the phrase, yeah, you, yeah. if you win. We do, we have a victory bell. Oh, a victory bell. Yeah, so, with, like, so, when, so when a campaign wins, we ring the victory bell. Ah. It's like, yeah, it's a really <laughs> lovely moment for us. That's yeah. good. So, so is that the best part of your job or is it? Kind of the joy is in the process. Oh, the best part is the petition starters, hands down. They, mm-hmm. I just love them so much. And honestly, I've campaigned for several NGOs and kind of been in the charity sector for a long time. But then when I joined and started working with petition starters at change.org, there's something really special about helping somebody who really needs support because they are potentially going through one of the most distressing moments in their life and you're able to give them a lot of strength through finding their own power and that is just so special and then seeing the petition starters growth through the campaign so I worked on a women in politics event with um, a few organizations the other day and invited our petition starters and we had this incredible moment where four petition starters that we'd worked with we'd never met them because often we're just speaking on the phone and over email and just like organizing everything online They also didn't know each other and they'd, you know, between them got Tesco's to stop selling caged egg, ended the tampon tax. One of them had got her partner, the UK government to get her partner out of prison who was wrongly imprisoned in the UAE. And the other one had got Google Maps to become wheelchair accessible. So there were just these four (gasps) amazing women who'd never met each other. We were meeting for the first time and they're just so humble, but just incredible people and yeah that was just like I was bursting with joy because yeah I think there's something really exciting about especially with current society and the way our institutions are set up we're led to believe that you don't have power or you are not powerful in society or that you have to go to a certain school you know you have to have certain networks you have to be a certain type of person to be able to create change And so the best part of the job is actually helping the people who aren't part of those inner circles and that elite group to find their power and then just knock that door down, you know, and make the decision maker agree. And then they win their campaign. And then what they end up doing is inspiring hundreds and thousands of other people. That's an amazing story. And as you said, I think there were probably quite a lot of barriers, I guess, to people feeling like they can have that power that you've just described that... Uh, you know, you, there'll be loads of people listening now who will hear those four examples and you'll think, and people will be like, wow, that's incredible. Oh, but I could never, yeah. I could never do that. Do you find yeah. what kind of barriers do exist for people in terms of actually starting and like winning petitions? Yeah, it's really interesting. So we've been doing a lot of work into this because we've got 17 million users in the UK who are kind of signing and helping campaigns win. A relatively small refraction of that actually start campaigns. So we looked into, well, what's stopping people from taking that step to actually start their own campaigns? Because there's no shortage of ideas and there's no shortage of injustices. (laughs) And when I talk to people on a daily basis, everyone has something that they care about and they feel passionately about. So why aren't they kind of taking that next step to actually do something about it? So we did a load of research early last year into people who go to start a campaign, but they actually just abandon the page and they don't continue. And we found that there were three common reasons. One was that they felt like they maybe don't know enough about the issue. Mm -hmm. And so if it was a climate change campaign, they don't know everything about climate science. Yeah, you feel like you're not the expert. Yeah. And these are complicated topics often, aren't they? So I can imagine you sort of end up self-selecting yourself out of a Exactly, because you think, oh, I just don't know enough. Especially in a society where I think we're all scared of being called out, yeah, like call-out culture. I think that is really having an impact on people's confidence and actually being able to speak up. We're not forgiving. We're not we're letting people actually make mistakes. But the other thing I would say about that is it really truly works in the favour of the powerful and the elite that you think you're not smart enough to challenge them and hold them to account. Mm-hmm. And so... 
I really, there's a lot of work we're doing now to just tell people you don't need to know everything because nobody does. Trust me. I have been into plenty of rooms with very, very powerful people who often don't have all of the answers and often don't know what they're talking about. So you don't need to have all of the answers. Because nobody has all of the answers. Nobody does. You just need to have passion and you need to know what you're calling for. Kind of another barrier that people cited was that they were scared that no one would sign the campaign. They were scared that no one would um, sign it so they didn't share, They didn't want to share anything with their friends and family. They'd feel silly. And I think there's something there about us telling people that, you know, how dare you think that you've got the right to call for something, you know, where we feel like we're being audacious to yeah. do something like that. And then the final one was that people were time poor. They felt like, oh, I just don't have the time to run this massive campaign that it could take over my life. And the thing that I'm like, you know, that I'd say to that is that it takes a community to run a campaign. No individual has, you know, I spoke about those women earlier who all won these incredible campaigns. They did not do that on their own. They had a community of support around them. And so one of the most important things when you're working on your campaign is thinking, who is your like ride or die crew? Like, who are the people in your team who are just going to be in it with you mm -hmm. through the lows, through the highs, that you can just like fight this together and honestly, I'd say it's one of the best joys of campaigning because of the connection it creates and the community that it creates. And how about those people who start a petition, and I guess lots of them don't go on to necessarily win or maybe they take a long time or you don't win first time. Presumably that still helps with progress, though. Actually, the process of starting a petition and there must be value in actually just getting support for something, even if the outcome isn't ultimately necessarily what you're hoping for? A hundred percent. There are so many unintended consequences of the campaigns that you will run that can be just so brilliant and exciting when you take a step back. So one of the examples that I talk about here is um, the tampon tax campaign that Laura Corriton ran. So she was 17 years old in her student room supposed to be revising for exams, <laughs> wanted to avoid it. So she just went onto Google, started like, you know, one click led to another. Yeah. She started finding about, out about the tampon tax, which is that women were being charged tax for sanitary products. And she just went down a whole black hole of like, just like Googling about it. <laughs> Internet rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and she started a campaign purely. She just wanted to be distracted. And she's, you know, she shared it on her social media. And then, you know, before she knew it, it became a massive movement of people up and down the country that she'd never met before, all trying to get behind her and do different things to end the tampon tax. One of the things I realised through the, the process of that campaign, so that started around 2014. And it kind of got partial victory when the Tory government said that they would end the tampon tax when we left the EU. And so now she's, right. she, now she's reignited her campaign now that we've left, mm -hmm. targeting Boris. And so if you, you should join that campaign because she's basically now saying you need to keep, stick to your pledge, you need to end the tampon tax. And so that's been a real, like, you know, a, a journey of like, you know, six years. And I've honestly seen a real shift in the way that society talks about periods in that time. Mm -hmm. And... What it did was it started a conversation in the mainstream media about periods and it made it so much more acceptable and okay to talk about something that was often a real shame and taboo. Back when Laura started her petition, I would never have felt comfortable saying the word period in my office. Now, I happily take my tampon out and walk to the... To you the, don't have to do the, the walk of shame anymore. No, I don't hide <laughs> it. I just happily... If someone says, are you OK and I've got cramps, I say I'm on my period and it's absolutely fine. And that is really, you know, Laura, along with so many people like Emma Barnett, like loads of campaigners have done this, but they never set out to do that. And I think that's, what, that's something that's really, really powerful. So there are just so many others. Like there are lots of young women who joined her campaign who now have gone on to campaign themselves. So yeah. Amica George is a great example who's who campaigned to end period poverty in the UK. She'd signed Laura's campaign, cared passionately about the issue, asked Laura, well, can I do more? And Laura suggested that she start her own petition about period poverty because it was an issue that Amica was worried about. Amica started a petition to get the government to provide all secondary and primary schools with free sanitary products because she found that one in eight girls were missing school in the UK because they didn't have access to sanitary products. And that happened through 
you know, this domino effect of joining this campaign. And Amica, you know, two years later won her campaign as well. Amazing. So there can just be really, really amazing things that you don't even intend when yeah. you set out. And so one of the things I wanted to talk a bit about is we talked about some of those barriers, a lot of which are kind of almost more emotional than they are practical. Because mm. actually going on change.org, like you said, I, I was going through the website, it's all, you know, like you say, very well designed and yeah. we've got lots of you know smart product people and user experience people yeah, exactly. making sure it all kind of works. Yeah. And your book is very much centred around kind of how to help everybody to kind of do something, kind of what that looks like, overcoming some of those barriers and how you can kind of feel that power for yourself. How important do you think it is to sort of understand your values and kind of the things that you're passionate about? Is is that a st- a, often a starting point for people in terms of campaigning? Yeah, I think that's a really great starting point because often when I talk about campaigning and activism, when I'm going out and doing talks, people often say to me when they're asking like, well... I'm not sure, I've got this thing, I'm not sure if I should start a campaign about it or where should I start if I want to do more? Often people are like, because, you know, there is definitely a real feeling in society now that people want to be, have more agency and Mm. want to take more responsibility for the society that they're living in. But then where do they start? And I think a really good place to start, so I talk about this in the book, is if you don't know what, what that is, what that issue is, because also... There are so many issues to be, yeah. to be worried. Like you said, we're not short. We're not short of challenges. Exactly. There are so many things. So then, like, well, how, what do you pick? How do you pick it? So I often talk about like, well, start with like what makes you angry. Yeah. Or if it's not anger, what just gets your fire in your belly? Like, what gets you really, really animated? And often that can be the thing that really points to what your values are and what is important to you. So for me, for example, you know, I'm obviously you know, surrounded by so many campaigns every single day. And so there are so many issues. You can't work on them all with the same kind of effort and the energy. So then how do you, you know, pick what you should dedicate your time to? And for me, an issue that's always just got me going and what's got fire in my belly is around racial justice. And so then I know, well, that's where I'll dedicate more of my time and that's where I'll try and do more. What Basically what I talk about in the book is like, well, think about what are the things that make you angry? We often say that anger isn't a good thing. And I think especially as British people, we're like, (laughs) oh, I shouldn't be angry. I need to like press this down. Actually, anger can be a really useful emotion to tell you what's important to you. And then the challenge is, well, just using that wisely and actually being able to channel that into something really productive and progressive. Then it can be a really great use of energy for your campaign. Yeah, and I think the more I listen to you, the more I think what I think you've done a really good job of is starting to kind of dispel some of the myths or just assumptions I think probably people make around campaigning. Yeah. So some of those things like, oh, it's quite lonely. I'd have, mm. I know I'd have to do it by myself. Whereas actually you're like, no, do you know what? There's a com- You get a community yeah. who, who kind of... It takes is, a village. Yeah, yeah. it does. A bit, a bit like raising kids. Yeah, Sounds exactly. very similar. Yeah. You know, that you don't need to know absolutely everything about a topic yeah. to, to be able to kind of see it through, that it's okay to be angry that it's okay to kind of have that fire in your belly and to then want to do something about it and that we can all have power and I think those things are for me a real shift because I think even four or five years ago I don't think I would have ever felt like I could even be a campaigner I would just be like oh no that's that's not not for me I'm not opinionated enough or smart enough lots of like not enoughs yeah whereas I think you're almost kind of what I love about the work that you do and change.org does is it's almost democratizing exactly I think yeah I call it democratizing democracy so it's nice (laughs) and, and and essentially what we're doing so if you think about it this way the you know in the a lot of the institutions that are around us were set up you know hundreds of years ago and they are still very, very hard to access. So looking at Parliament and, you know, even the media industry, it's all still very old fashioned. And it's very hard for marginal groups to have a voice in those spaces. And then what's happened then is like in the last 10 to 15 years, the Internet has come along and has just massively disrupted who is able to have a voice. And it's meant that people, women, people of colour, young people, people with disabilities are able to say something that they believe in and that voice is ampl- can, it can be amplified across the country, across the globe. One thing that we found, so when we were doing some of this research last year, was even though men start more petitions, and that makes sense to me, men start more petitions, yet because society has told us that men have a right to and should speak up, 
So even though men start more petitions, women under 35 win more. Oh, interesting. And that's a great signal to me because it tells me that actually the barriers in our, you know, in the institutions around us are the only thing that's really stopping us from being, you know, real voices in around the decision makers table. And so then what I love about the work that I do and that the the what the internet has provided us with is the ability to force, you know, young people, women of color onto those decision makers tables. And, you know, they're being forced to listen to be listened to. And give us a couple of examples of things you're maybe working on at the moment that you're that you just think are particularly interesting or that you're that get kind of the fire in fire in your belly. So there's these two sisters called Gemma and Maya, and they're I think they're like eighteen and twenty years old. And they've started a petition to make street harassment illegal. You know, as a woman yourself, I'm sure that you are no stranger to being harassed on the street. I don't know anybody who's never been, you know, shouted at Mm. on the street at least once in their lives. What happened was, was that the younger sister got catcalled when she was 15 years old and she was in a school uniform. And then I think then shortly after that, they saw in the news that France had made street harassment illegal. And so they thought, okay, we should do this in the UK. And they started a campaign. I mean, it's extraordinary because they've, you know, got such creativity and so much passion and hope for this issue. They've started an Instagram channel where they're sharing stories of what, you know, people who are signing their campaign have experienced, but they're also giving people advice about how to deal with it if you've, you know, if you've experienced it. They've got hundreds of thousands of signatures. They've been on Women's Hour. They've been written about in The Guardian, Telegraph, like they've been everywhere. And they, like, I've got no doubt that they will change this. But what's really special about the campaign that they're running is that they really are building up as a real feminist movement and a yeah. kind of community. Um, That's so impressive. In, in between exams yeah. and studying, like, you know, it's things, it's campaigns like that that really I get so excited about, particularly when I think there there have been times in the last year where people have, have, been, fe- have been feeling quite hopeless mm. about, you know, the future. You know, society feels like it's becoming more polarised. Sometimes it can feel like your, you know, your vote doesn't count. But then I turn around and I see, you know, young women like them or I see the school strikers and I'm just like, do you know what? I think we're going to be okay because these young people are going to grow up to be our decision makers and they've grown up with the internet and they know how to use it smartly. And what about historically when you think about all the different campaigns you've worked on at change.org, is there one way you were maybe surprised by it perhaps on paper didn't look like it was a real zeitgeist one or one that was really kind of trending and actually almost a bit left field or it, or it maybe just took you took you and the team by surprise in terms of the traction that it got? You know... One thing that was interesting was that for years we were trying to work on the issue of plastics and it was never getting traction. So we would, you know, work with petition starters who'd started campaigns and try to grow them, but it just wasn't, nothing was happening. And then it was almost overnight as Blue Planet aired. Okay. And that final episode where David Attenborough basically made a call to arms and said, you know, we need to do something about the plastics. And what I think he did there that was really special and that hadn't been done before was he conveyed the issue in with with just brilliant storytelling because you were seeing, you know, Blue Planet is just amazing storytelling really at the heart of it. And so you saw the damage physically, what was the damage that plastics were having on you know, turtles and, you know, creatures that you were forming an attachment to when you were watching them. And so almost overnight, we just saw just a real rush of campaigns started (laughs) on the site about plastics up and down the country. And it started this incredible movement that is still going on now where, you know, we had school children campaigning to get their local restaurants to stop using plastics. We had doctors starting petitions to make their hospitals go plastic free. And then we had this incredible class of primary school kids who were campaigning to make get Michael Gove to ban plastic straws. And it was everywhere and it was small and it was big. And that was a really exciting time because it made me realise that, you know, just because something's not taking off now, it doesn't mean it will never take off. You've just got to be able to tell that story in a very in the most powerful way you can to really get people to listen to you. And I've seen that that kind of that same um, lesson. I've I've been taught that lesson time and again. 
you know, for a long time, nobody was really doing anything about unfair deportations. We kept on seeing cases, one after the other, being started on our site where somebody was being unfairly deported to a country when actually they had to flee that country because they, their lives were in danger. And so we started working on these one at a time. And then slowly we just saw a pattern that there was something going on at the Home Office where people were being unfairly put in these positions and we were only seeing the people who'd started petitions. So what about yeah, all those course, others that yeah. are being unfairly deported? And so, you know, linking those stories up with journalists and then actually the journalists kind of running away with that and, and starting to investigate. And so that's still going on. There's like um, a whole campaign into, uh, you know, the home office systems and the processes and actually how they decide who gets deported and, and what the review system is there. But that issue, again, you know, it was like it was a drip drip effect. And now it's a bit a lot more, you know, it's a lot easier to get people engaged about issues of immigration and deportation, whereas a few years ago it was a lot harder. And generally, do you see the media obviously plays an important role in what people are interested in mm. at any moment in time? You know, you talk there about, I mean, David Attenborough is sort of a law yeah. unto himself, isn't he? <laughs> Basically, whatever he says, we all just sort of go, OK, yes, yes, absolute, we'll do that, please, David. Absolute national treasure. Yeah, yeah. but... Do you see media as a kind of force for good in terms of all the work you do at Change.org? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we definitely tell campaigners this, that the media is a real tool that you can use in winning your campaign, but not to get too obsessed about getting stuff in the media. I actually talk about this in, the, in my book about actually, well, when, you're, when you start a campaign, how do you even know where to start and who to send your campaign or your press release to? And I think that because the media is an institution, it can be incredibly intimidating. Yeah. So many petition starters we work with, are, you know, feel like they don't want to approach journalists because what if the journalist gets cross with them? And um, but one thing that, you know, I, I talk about in the book is that you, you know, you're helping that journalist do their job as well, by the way. You're both kind of winning out of this. And so the trick really is to frame what you're sending them as being newsy, something that's, you know, there's a really clear message there. And there's a whole art and kind of, you know, expertise to it that I describe in the book. But really, for people to know that the media can be an excellent tool for winning your campaign, because it can really make the decision maker feel, you know, shamed or put them, hold them accountable. So journalists can be really great, you know, allies to you. Yeah. And if people are listening now and thinking, I kind of agree with all the sentiment of what you're saying, and actually I'm starting to see a real trend about this point around agency and accountability mm. and people wanting to feel like they are contributing positively, whether that is starting a petition or signing one, whatever that kind of looks like. If people are listening and thinking, right, I do want to make more of a contribution, I want to feel like I have more purpose, I sometimes worry that people feel like, oh, that means they have to go and work in a charity or they have to feel like they're, save, they're saving the world directly. And for most people, that's not the kind of reality yeah. at work. What sorts of things can people do? Yeah, there's so many. And I really, my whole thing is that I want activism to feel as open and accessible and welcoming as possible. I think there is a real myth and I think it's been perpetuated by, you know, activist groups that you have to be, you have to have the right credentials to call yourself an activist. You have to have changed yourself to a railing, you know, at least once to say that you're a real activist. Yeah. And it's just not true. And I really want people to own that word more because I think in, in doing that, you give yourself the permission to do more. Activism is everything from writing a blog about something that you care passionately about to joining a campaign. You don't have to be the person who starts the campaign either. It's joining a campaign that you actually really, really care about and then thinking about, well, what are the things that I'm especially good at? You might feel like you're just very, very practical and you're very hands-on, so you'd like to go into, you'd like to volunteer at a protest or you'd like to actually go and volunteer at an actual practical kind of, you know, slogan-making session or you might think, well, I'm actually quite good at taking pictures. One of the things that petition starters really, really appreciate is people getting in touch with them saying, I can do X, Y, Z. Do you want me to help yeah. you? And so if there is a campaign out there that you really care about, then just reach out to people and, you know, offer your support because often petition starters do feel really lonely and, you know, they can feel like they're just doing this on their own. And there's nothing better than someone approaching them going, you know, tell me how I can use these skills.
Yeah, we've talked before on the podcast a few times about using your strengths and finding different ways to apply your strengths and for those strengths to show up. Yeah. And what you've just described is a perfect example of if people are trying to think creatively about, oh, I've got this strength, maybe I don't use it quite as much as I'd like in my day job, or I just want it to, I want to practice it a little bit more. Connecting that strength with something you kind of care about and not dismissing that as being something that is useful you know just giving your time your expertise like like everybody I think has something of use to kind of offer and to kind of give and I think sometimes we're our own worst critic of thinking oh that's not me I just I don't think I'll have anything useful so I think what you should really do is think like what what's the thing that you know gets gives puts fire in my belly what is the thing that I want to contribute to this like do I actually if no one started a campaign on this then maybe I should be the person to start it or if they have then reach out to them and offer your support and think to yourself, like, what can I offer that can be helpful? It might just be, I just want to offer my hands and my head and just tell me what I can do. Yeah. But yeah, I guess like the taking that first step and just identifying what you care about and what you can do will be, I think, a real, it'll be like breaking a seal. Yeah, and... I think for me, the more I've got into it, the less scared I've been. Yeah, you know, exactly. The, the more I started to follow Mother Pucker yeah, on love, Instagram, Anna Whitehouse. Uh, oh. And um, I came across Anna when I was on maternity leave, actually, yeah. uh, kind of relevantly. And she's done quite a lot of petitioning around something called Flex Appeal. Yeah, yeah. And I think has done a brilliant, a brilliant job of that. And I think sort of almost because it connected me to something. So I'm really passionate about kind of flexible working for everyone, whether you've got kids or not. And... I didn't feel like I needed to be her. I just felt like, oh, I really, I love what she's doing. I feel really connected to yeah. it. How can I support her? Whether that's signing a petition, you know, sometimes commenting on some of the things she needs right. on Instagram. Sometimes she just needs things. She needs some profile. And we'll often talk about the kind of work that she does. Okay. And you just feel like, yeah. oh, I just, I try to look for lots of different ways to kind of support the work that she's leading. Which is amazing. So she, she's basically, in you, got a really strong ally and supporter yeah. who's just constantly looking out for her and her campaign. And I think that's such a powerful thing. And it can sometimes, you know, that resonates with you because of your own personal feelings. Yeah. And that's where you should start because don't just campaign about something because everybody, you know, you, know, you feel like you should. Because you feel like you should. You should, st- you should start with what actually what matters to you. And we always end our podcast by asking our guests for their best piece of career advice. And I think for you, this is probably a particularly tough one, given you must get asked for advice all the time from people mm. campaigning. So there's sort of campaign advice, there's general advice, but almost if someone, let's imagine those two girls you were mentioning who yeah. had done that incredible petition around catcalling, as they're kind of entering the world of work, what sort of advice would you give them? One of the things that I've really noticed, I think, especially in leadership, is that there are so many mediocre white men doing really powerful things. And the thing that's got them there is just having audacity to put themselves forward for things. And so what I just, I guess my advice is, you know, having the audacity of a mediocre white man say yes to things and put yourself out of your comfort zone to take on that thing that maybe scares you because you're often scared because you think you can't do it but that's just your inner imposter syndrome telling you you know that you need to tick every single box in a job description to put your to to be able to apply for it and it's just not true and I've started really trying to switch my mindset to that I find it hard. I'm doing a lot of unlearning to be able to do that. Yeah. But it's. I think it's so important because there are just so many exceptional people around me who aren't necessarily putting themselves forward because they feel that they, you know, they have. They just haven't had the, you know, society train them to say yes to everything. So thank you so much for that conversation today. We will put all the links to the book to do something. If you want a really practical place to start about how you can have more of a campaigning mindset, I think, and really think about what it means to you, how you might become somebody who has a bit more power and accountability and agency, I'd really encourage you to have a read. Change.org, I'm sure lots of you have been to the website before, but I will make sure that we link lots of the campaigns that we've talked about today because I think people might be interested in like some of the specifics. Yeah. So we'll do that. And a link to start a petition as well. Yeah, oh, maybe maybe we'll have to see on the day the podcast episode goes exactly. out. Maybe, maybe we'll have a little spike in petitions. That would be amazing. So, Kajal, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to chat today. Thank you for having me. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Kajal. This is now me interviewing Lauren Bravo, author of How to Break Up with Fast Fashion. So Lauren, perhaps you could start by just telling us why you decided to not buy any clothes for a year, which sounds almost impossible. Well, thank you for saying that. I've had quite a lot of people going, Mom, what's the big deal? I could go a year without buying clothes. Well, you see, I thought that and then I actually practically started to think about it because I don't think I buy loads. But actually, when you really think, okay, so what, you're not going to buy anything new for an event Mm -hmm. or for a wedding? Absolutely. Or when your tights get holes in? Every time the seasons change. Yeah. 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 So how how did that go? Tell us about that year. Mm. So I'd been sort of taking baby steps towards it, I guess, for a couple of years. I knew that my consumption had got a little bit out of hand. Um, (laughs) Over the course of my 20s, I was just buying more and more from, you know, the big chains, the websites. I got a little bit addicted to my ASOS Premier delivery. Um, (laughs) I was constantly shopping. Like, I was just always thinking about what I was going to buy next, trying stuff on, sending it back. I was, like, forever trudging up and down Oxford Street, (laughs) looking for that next kind of outfit. You know when you tell yourself, like, all I need now is a jacket and then I'm done then I won't need to buy anything else for months yeah, yeah. and you get the jacket and then you think oh but actually I do need a pair of ankle boots and once I get the ankle boots then I'll be done yeah. and it just went on like that and I realised that clothes were taking up just too much of my time <laughs> my energy my money certainly and at the same time I was reading a lot more about the environmental impact of the fashion industry as a kind of sometime fashion writer it was pretty hard to escape from that and obviously the humanitarian reality as well of the garment workers who are you know slaving for poverty wages basically so that we can buy a 20 pound dress and the more of that stuff I read the kind of worse I felt about it and you know it was a real combination I think of the morals and the ethics and also just quite selfishly realizing that it wasn't making me happy anymore. So what was the hardest thing for you in that in that year? It was getting myself out of the um, kind of emotional shopping mindset, Mm. which sounds a little bit woo, but I kind of realised quite quickly that I was using shopping as a kind of panacea, I guess, for like every emotion, you know? So if I was (laughs) bored, I would shop. If I was sad, I would shop. If I was happy, I would shop. If I was hungry, I would shop. Like, yeah, so actually it was weird because once I sort of formed the habit, and I am a bit of a... 
I'm a creature of habit, so I respond quite well, I think, to sort of absolute rules and boundaries, mm-hmm. um, which not everybody does. But for me, telling myself, okay, I just don't shop on the high street anymore. I just don't do that. Like, I don't go to Topshop. That was actually the easier part of it. But it was still, my kind of impulse was always to be shopping. So it was like unsubscribing from all the mailing lists, yeah. you know, unfollowing the influencers that make me want to shop. Like it took me weeks before I stopped kind of going on the websites really masochistically just to see all the things that I couldn't buy. <laughs> oh, because no. I just I, I don't want to start like punishing too much. yourself. And I know. <laughs> and it was like I just had to know what was out there and what other people were buying. So that was hard. It was hard every time the seasons changed. That was a big thing for me. So when it, you know summer came along and suddenly everyone was wafting along in these gorgeous kind of peasanty dresses and I didn't have one and then I felt really inferior and I had to make do with last summer stuff and that was difficult but actually do you know what it was easier than I thought it was going to be and what did you find were the most useful tactics or things that you discovered during that year because I was saying to Lauren just before we started that having read the book I think I've got a list of three or four things that I've done differently since reading the book and one or two things that I want to try out. So I'm interested to compare and contrast <laughs> our different things of like what worked for you, mm. like what were you already doing that you did maybe more of or what worked really well so that if people listening are going, oh, okay, I sort of get some of the realities of why this might be a good thing. Yeah. Perhaps they don't have to not buy anything for a year, you know. No. You sort of, you went big. I went big, I did. But what kind um, of things could people do? So, I mean, I would say if and if you can just stop shopping for maybe a month, I think that's a really good place to start. I also think if you can't do that, I like the secondhand first rule. So before you go to the shops and buy anything new, always see if you can get it secondhand first. So whether that's going to a charity shop, if it's like, I want a black roll neck jumper. You'd be amazed how quickly you can find that in a charity (laughs) shop or a vintage shop. Go on eBay, like so often you can buy the exact dress that you were eyeing up on the high street often brand new with tags on for half the price on yeah. eBay or Depop. You know, the reality of fast fashion is that there are so many cast-offs out there that it's not that difficult to pick things up second-hand. Although I should say, obviously, it is harder if you don't have the resources, if you don't live in big cities, it's harder to find bigger sizes second-hand. So yeah. I would never suggest that that is kind of a blanket solution for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've tried really hard to do with the book is kind of make it clear that there are different solutions for everyone. So whatever your personal style is, whatever your resources are, your lifestyle, there are things that you can do. So one of the things I wasn't doing that I had to get a lot better at is styling clothes, which sounds really obvious. And this is something that, you know, a couple of generations ago would not have been even a thing. Can you say your mum's good at it? Yeah. yeah. I spoke to a psychologist in the book, Dr. Dion Terrelong, who is brilliant because she's a stylist, and a psychologist. So what she's a combination. Really, I know, it's brilliant when the Venn diagram overlaps. Yeah, yeah. She's like my perfect interviewee. And she was saying that because fashion has become so fast and so cheap, we've really lost the knack of styling different outfits. So mm. we've kind of forgotten that you can like put a jumper on over a dress and it looks like you've got a new skirt. Like really basic, obvious yeah. things. We just don't do them because when we're bored, we just go and buy a new outfit. So one of the things I got a lot better at was getting all my clothes out getting those out and really forcing myself to like try things on in different combinations and saying actually that jacket that I've had for five years that's been languishing in the back of the cupboard that would actually look really good with this thing that I bought last month from a charity shop or whatever and then suddenly there's a new outfit and so often we just wear the top 10% of our wardrobes yeah so yeah the always think the one thing I've started to do better is I'm always much better at using my clothes when Mm -hmm. I've bought them as a complete outfit or whether it's like if it's like a dress then it's like okay well that's okay because I know how that works all of my items when I did that exercise that you said was like to get everything out so I was like right I'm going to do it I'm Mm going to I'm going to follow the principles of the book the things that I don't wear are all the things where I can't work out what the outfit is. You know, right. I can't I can't style it. So you're like, well, I love this skirt, but does but, it go But I don't know. I don't have top. anything. And then yeah. I think I end up then buying too much extra stuff, almost like attempting right. to make it into... And oh, it never, and it God, never quite yeah. makes it. See, this is where you need my mum's golden rule. Yeah. So my mum has her own little chapter in the book, which she was... I know, I like that. Um, and she has always said this, I mean, long before sustainability was something that yeah. anyone was talking about. She would never let me buy anything unless I could name three items in my wardrobe already that I would wear it with yeah um, and three occasions that I would wear it to and if you couldn't name them then you didn't buy it and I just that is actually a really good rule you know and so often I think we're shopping for people that we're not 
you know yeah. we buy for like a lifestyle that we don't have it's aspirational shopping and that's not our fault right because marketers are paid millions of pounds to sort yeah. of make us believe <laughs> that we want these things yeah so I think being really honest with yourself is quite important working out that difference between like liking something and needing something yeah because how often do we say like oh I really need a you know a new jumper or that trend that everybody's wearing we don't need it you know we, yeah we, we want it and maybe actually the truth is we just like it on other people, but it doesn't really have a place in our lives. Some of the things that... Let's see what you think of my list. Okay, And then you, you can tell me if I've got any gaps or things I should do differently. So the one thing actually I hadn't heard of was day two. So day two is mm. a spray. Is that the best way to it, describe yeah, it? basically dry shampoo for clothes. Yes, there you go. That's yeah. a better description. Dry shampoo for clothes. And it's all about kind of you don't need to wash your clothes at the end right. of every day. There's one for kind of normal fabrics, one for delicate fabrics. And one for jeans as well. Because obviously jeans you're not really ever meant to wash. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, again, you know, you talked about habits. I think I get into the habit of like, you get home, you just wash stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually sometimes you don't. Or perhaps you've no. just not had it on for long enough to need it and you could just spray it. So yeah, I bought my day two which I'm using and actually that has been quite an easy to break habit of just thinking oh I'm just going to put it back on a hanger instead unless you've got particularly sweaty that day of course I mean do you know it's funny I did a radio interview the other day and the first question was do you smell oh (laughs) I mean that's a really harsh way to start an interview it really threw me and I think there is still this lingering stigma that anybody who even cares about the planet must be yeah. some kind of stinky hippie. Yeah. You know. So I wear good of... deodorant. So. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I know. It's like, yeah, no, I'm not telling people they have to become the great unwashed, you know. Yes. It's, yeah. I just thought it was a good, ground. it's a good um, practical thing. Mm. Um, and so if people are still thinking, okay, so I sort of get practically why this might be a good thing. What are some of the other reasons, like, why we should start giving up fast fashion? Because there mm. are some... We've talked very practically so far, which I think is very useful for people, but there are some really compelling big reasons like why this is a problem yeah there are so the fashion industry has a bigger carbon footprint than international flights and maritime shipping combined right that's terrifying yeah it's pretty staggering (laughs) (laughs) and I mean that fact that you you read out at the beginning you know our clothing consumption has doubled in 15 years and it's showing no signs of slowing this Mm. is the terrifying thing but 15 years is such a short space of time and I think that there is this almost misconception that it's inevitable and Mm. that our consumption will just carry on speeding up but actually it's not at all you know I remember when I was growing up in the 90s if you wanted something new you saved up for it and you maybe thought about it for a a few weeks or even a few months and then then you would maybe go and buy it and then you would wear it for years and it became your favorite thing and that was what you would wear every time you you know I remember having one Ted Baker top right I'd like saved up for this Ted Baker top for so long and then literally wore it relentlessly absolutely and that is what we need to get back to so that I find it kind of encouraging that if we've got this far in 15 years although it's terrifying I think that we could go back you know I think that's a good way 15 years is not such a long amount of time um we've lost our way but i don't think it should be that difficult to get back on the right path it's going to take massive attitude change you know um the other thing that i think is getting left out of the conversation far too often at the moment is the humanitarian side of it so it really upsets me when people talk about sustainability as though it's purely about planet and not about people yeah so the fashion industry i kind of i think it's misogynist i think that there is a massive gender problem within fashion 80% of garment workers across the world are women aged 18 to 25 um, but only 12.5% of fashion companies have a female CEO and that Mm. says it all doesn't it so women are really being exploited at kind of both ends of this spectrum you know women are being exploited to make these clothes so cheaply they're being paid terrible terrible wages working in awful conditions but at the same time women are being exploited by the companies that are selling to us relentlessly you know we are kind of we are so often made to feel that we are less than unless we spend money on clothes on you know makeup all of that we're made to feel like we are only as good as our last outfit and I think once you kind of almost peek behind the curtain and once you realize just how much money goes into marketing clothes at us it really takes the shine off them yeah you see the kind of tricks that they use and the way that fashion media has a big role to play in this as well I think that's all a big problem and yeah I mean the environmental stuff is just staggering like I could talk about it all day long one of the things actually I was I was still thinking about, and I'd be interested to get your point of view, and I can't believe I'll be the first person who's asked you this, is thinking, okay, so I'm going to start to change my behaviours in some of the ways that we've talked about, but inevitably we are still going to still buy some clothes, that's still going to happen. 
where should I buy them from? Was my question. <laughs> I, like, and it's a, I feel like I'm actually just asking questions for my own life now. But I sort of got to the end and some of the brands that you name in the book, I buy clothes from and then was thinking, I don't feel as good as I used okay. to about buying from them now. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, that's fine. I'm the Grinch who stole shopping. Yeah. So, but I was thinking, okay, the reality is still, yeah, and for lots of people, they can't always afford lots of sustainable no, fashion absolutely. is still not accessible mm-hmm. because ultimately to do those things properly fundamentally those clothes then have to be expensive so there's a real kind of catch-22 do you ever like recommend places to people where you feel like oh actually they're going in the right direction from a sustainability perspective definitely yeah I mean the really kind of heartening thing is that even just over the last six months while I've been talking about this stuff so many new brands have kind of been put on my radar and I think it's a tricky one because as you say clothes need to cost a certain amount in order to be made fairly. Yeah. So we should not be buying five pound t-shirts because a five pound t-shirt cannot be made without exploiting somebody, mm-hmm. unless it's secondhand. But at the same time, there is this idea that sustainable clothing has to be really expensive. And mm. it's not true, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that much more. And I think particularly when you take into consideration how fast fashions are very shoddily made, right? Yeah. It falls apart really quickly. It doesn't last. And it doesn't last as well because these trends are kind of cycling around so quickly. Yes, yeah, every eight weeks or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, like a lot of these micro trends, we get bored of so quickly. So if you sit down and do the maths and you think about how often you're replacing things in your wardrobe, committing to something that maybe costs a third more but will actually last you three years rather than three months is a better economy. Now, all that said, obviously, if you don't have that money, you don't have that money. So, you know, I, I would never kind of tell people that going and buying a £200 dress is the answer and we all need to be doing it because we can't. Um, I can't. (laughs) Um, So there are different ways. Obviously, we've talked about charity shops. I think it's really important that we don't let secondhand become something that is the preserve of the elite and the privileged. Mm -hmm. You know, we need everybody to buy secondhand. We need rich people to buy secondhand. We need middle class people to buy secondhand. But what we don't need is to alienate people on... I can't gentrify the charity shop. Totally. Like, (laughs) I think there is room for all kinds of charity shops. So I'm really glad that we have the sort of more upmarket, the bougie, like, boutique charity shops. Like the Mary's Living and Giving. Mary's Living and Giving. Shelter boutiques are amazing. Okay, Um, I volunteer in a charity shop that gets a lot of, like, great labels in. And I think it's really important that those things... Is that so you can get the clothes? Is that why you do that? Maybe, maybe, maybe. I think there's a real place for them in terms of convincing kind of, you know, fashionistas that secondhand is for them. But it's really important that we also, charity shops, one of their main functions is to provide clothing for people on low incomes who need it. I think it's really important we don't Mm. lose sight of that. I also, there are so many amazing people out there who are making clothes from like dead stock fabric and things like that. What's dead stock fabric? Dead stock is fabric that has been bought in the past and they're not made into clothes. So, so many fashion companies will have warehouses full of fabric that was bought and then maybe they didn't make as many as they thought. Like off cuts or the end of rolls. end of rolls, you know, or they did a big fabric order and then they actually decided not to make as many items as they thought they were going to. Also, garments that are already in existence can be unpicked and turned into other things. And there are some brilliant designers out there, particularly on Instagram, you can find them. They're making clothes with dead stock fabrics, with vintage things that they're upcycling, and they're doing it very much on a made-to-order basis, which means it doesn't okay. cost loads of money. Okay, because they sort of go, well, we know we've got the order before we start making exactly. it, and that works better from a supply chain yeah. perspective. And it's that's it, and it's much more sustainable, of course, because you don't get the wastage. Yeah. So, I mean, one of my very, very favourite brands is um, Birdsong London, and I talk about them all the time because they're just such a brilliant example of a company yeah. that's doing everything really well. I like what they do because it's a very holistic approach. So it is feminist through and through. You know, their motto is no sweatshops, no Photoshop. They are size inclusive. They're always striving to kind of, you know, widen the range of sizes. They've moved over to a made-to-order model so they can, I think, make to pretty much any specification now. And they're just wonderful. And they train groups of artisan women makers. um, And they pay everyone a really fair living wage. They're just great. And their clothes are not that expensive. Like, they're more than Zara. Like, they are. But I think their T-shirts are about £35, something like that. You know, So um, if you bought two less of the ones that are usually 15 quid or 10, you know, you could be broadly affordable, like you say, if we're buying less stuff. Totally. And it lasts really well. It washes really well. It's not going to be falling apart. Their trends are quite evergreen, you know. They're not making things that are really faddy. 
And there are more and more of these brands coming through. So I think it's a valid criticism, but I also think it's changing really quickly. And I mean, I've had to eat my own words quite a lot because I have talked a lot in the past about how so many sustainable brands were making styles that I just didn't want to wear. You know, I would admire okay, them on yeah. other people, like the very sort of like hemp smocks and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of <laughs> beige culottes and things that just feel very kind of arty. <laughs> and they just don't work on me. They just, no, no, yeah. no. But again, there are so many brands now that are making really fantastic, quite kind of flamboyant, fun, mm-hmm. camp, disco fabulous, you know, everything is out there and it is coming. So it takes a bit of research, but I promise, you know, if you're feeling like the sustainable fashion world is not for you, please sit tight and please make that demand known and get in touch with brands. If you find brands that you love, yeah. but they're too expensive or they don't make your size or, you know, whatever it is, get in touch and tell them because that feedback is the way that brands learn. And, you know, if you show that that demand is there and you hold them to account, sometimes they will change. And we are just out of things like London Fashion Week, lots of red carpet events, BAFTAs, Oscars. And I'm starting to see a bit of a trend of people re-wearing gowns for the red yeah. carpet sometimes. It's starting, um, starting to happen. Some people starting to talk about kind of sustainability even, you know, on kind of the catwalk, etc. Yeah. How optimistic, hopeful do you feel about people breaking up with fast fashion? I have seen a lot of people talking this year about on news resolutions being around this particular topic. So there's been there has been a lot of coverage about it. Yeah. Are you starting to feel like this is something where actually people are taking it seriously? I am. I am definitely. I am quite optimistic. I think I have to be. It would be too big yeah. if I wasn't, <laughs> too you know. Yeah. Um, and actually just from the response that the book has had has been so lovely and so encouraging and I've been really surprised that there have been a lot of people picking it up who I thought maybe would be reluctant. Like, they are finding practical solutions from it, which is just really lovely to see. But, yeah, you're right. Generally, the media has really done a bit of an about-turn this year. And it's interesting because I think inevitably when when these conversations start and, you know, big media platforms have to sort of change their tune, there is always going to be a certain level of hypocrisy that goes along with it for mm. a time. Yes. So yeah. what we're seeing... Almost like the awkward The awkward, the awkward phase. transition. I think you talk about that in the are, book, like the awkward phase. Yeah, they're sort yeah. of both things at once. So we are seeing, you know, websites will have one article which is all about sustainable fashion and then next to it will be 15 coats you need to buy yeah. this autumn and it's yeah. a bit like come on guys yeah but i think that is kind of inevitable and it's things are not going to just happen overnight yeah um people are realizing for all kinds of reasons and i think that you can't expect people to make these big changes in their life on ethical grounds alone i think it'd be nice I agree. if they did but we are human we are flawed you know, we've got our own stuff going on. And I think that if you can appeal to people on multiple levels, you know, if you can tell them, it's pretty urgent, we need to sort that out. If you can tell them people are being exploited. But you can also say, do you know what? You might be a little bit calmer and happier Mm. if you make this change, you know, to really examine your own habits. Because ultimately, I don't think fast fashion makes anyone that happy. I think it's a myth we've been sold. Like, I know that the way I was shopping... And the way I felt when I kind of stood in front of my wardrobe in the morning, it wasn't great. It so do you wasn't. feel, have you found that now? So now you're a year and a bit on, what's your relationship like now with fast fashion? Like, how are you feeling generally about it? I don't really miss it. I still have clothes. I mean, yeah. I think that's what I've learned is, look, I'm never going to be a person who can just have a wardrobe full of, like, grey cashmere jumpers and black slacks and wear them <laughs> every day and be happy. Like, that's never going to be You're me. not the Steve Jobs of I me. I am yeah. not the Steve Jobs. Um, I, yeah, I love the theatricality of clothes. That won't change. But what I've discovered is that, actually, I have a much stronger sense of my own personal style now than I did when I was yeah. a slave to the high street because I was buying things because I was told I ought to rather than because I actually loved them. So... I feel happier, I feel calmer. I mean, I'll be honest, it's going to take some time. You know, like a year is not enough to fix me completely. I still <laughs> have the meltdowns in the morning where I'm standing in my pants and I'm throwing nothing around wear. and I've got nothing to wear. I hate everything, everything looks terrible on me. Um, but normally what I've realised is that that is something else. You know, that is anxiety or it's PM work or it's a bad work yeah. week. That is something else. The clothes were never the solution. You know, shopping yeah. didn't fix it. If anything, it just made it worse. Yeah, you've got less money at the end of it. I've just got less money at the end of it and I feel guilty and I've got, you know, no room in my bedroom and I still have nothing to wear and I still still feel bad about myself so it's a slow journey but I'm getting there definitely 
So if people are listening and want to find out more, obviously they can buy the book. Where can they buy the book from? You can buy the book from all retailers. I mean, I would say I'd love it if you would go to an independent bookshop and request it rather than buying it from the big A. But, you know, please just buy it wherever, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fussy. And, um, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Lauren Bravo and I'm at Lauren Bravo on Twitter as well. The good thing about having a weird name is that nobody else competes that's for your true. handle. So I'm just at Lauren Bravo everywhere. And I would really encourage you to read the book if it's something you're interested in. I think I found, so I'm definitely not a kind of fashionista. It's not necessarily like the thing that, the topic I would go to first. You look very stylish today. But I think what I loved about the book was the combination of, Lauren is a brilliant writer. Um, Thank you. And she's funny. I found it funny. And it's so practical and useful. I just don't doubt that kind of anyone listening would kind of get something from it. And I actually really enjoy following Lauren on Twitter. She always brightens up my day with some like amazing comment and you can follow all of her articles and all the kind of different and interesting things that she does. So I think we can all probably break up at least a little bit with fast fashion during 2020. Definitely. Take that first step away. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been great. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you have been with us for the past seven days and listened to them all and and you've got to the end of every episode, thank you so much. We'd love to get any feedback from you. You can find us on Instagram. We're just at amazingif. You can email us, get in touch at amazingif.com or you can find us on LinkedIn and just write us a little message so that we know you're a podcast listener. And we'd love to know what you think because we are wondering whether to do more of these sorts of special episodes where we do a deep dive into a particular topic. Were they too long? Were they too short? Is there anyone else you would particularly like to hear from in the future that we can ask to see if they'd be prepared to be interviewed by us? So thank you so much for being with us over the last seven days and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 